Hello and welcome to the symposium. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by Harry. Hello, thank and you for having me on. And we are going to talk about Wilhelm von Humboldt's Limits of State Action. It's not going to be a book review, but uh, we are going to talk about the main insights from Humboldt. I, I think he is a very important figure, and he contains uh, really interesting insights that people in the libertarian and classical liberal camp absolutely love. He was a very interesting figure. Mm. Have you heard of him? Only what you've told me so far in the lead up to this discussion. You told me that he was uh, pivotal in establishing the universities of um, Prussia. Was that correct? Or um, am I misremembering what you said? There were universities before him, but he was really pivotal in shaping the education system of Prussia and Germany. Mm. I think that the Berlin University is named also University of, uh, Humboldt University after him. He was a major uh, figure in all sorts of fields. He was privately educated. He became a genius. And uh, he was educated by lots of uh, important figures of the Enlightenment period in Berlin. Mm. So he was born basically in 1767. And he died in 1835 in Tegel near Berlin. He was born in Potsdam. He was 24 years old when he wrote The Limits of State Action. And I think he wrote it in, in 1792, so it's just uh, three years after the French Revolution began. Mm. He's a very interesting figure. I, I imagine that the, lots of political tracts were written around that time discussing the excesses of the French Revolution. Because yeah. uh, the French Revolution, as I recall it, was essentially a lot of these uh, revolutionaries thought that they were putting into action a lot of the uh, more radical ideas that came from the Enlightenment, and then a lot of people who also had supported those ideas, saw the tyranny that came with them of overthrowing an entire monarchical system. Even um, Thomas Jefferson in the US at first was a supporter of the French Revolution because he saw that throwing away the chains of oppression that had been keeping the peoples of Europe down in the same way that America had. But then when you start to hear all of the excesses, the, um, the thousands that died, he changed his tune later on in the, uh, uh, in the 1790s. Well, yes, uh, you could say that in a way that the French Revolution was the epitome of the Enlightenment, or at least the effort to act according to Enlightenment values. Um, I think in a way this is correct, but uh, you could also say that there are some other aspects uh, to the issue that we could talk about perhaps another time, because this is a massive topic. So yeah, like of saying, and there were so many various, yeah, so um, many various re but you reactions, can, uh, you reactions can to it. Definitely as well. say that the Atlantic revolutions had also a thing to play in the French Revolution, and there was a sort of re classical republicanism that was adopted in Europe, especially when the Italian Renaissance was, in a sense, exported to mm. the north. A lot of people were having. Um, considerations against the monarchy that were based on classical republicanism. There was also the, the wars of the Reformation that began in 1517 and lasted, I think, around the middle of the 17th century. So you could say that the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, they are really multidimensionally, there are, they are events that have to be understood in, uh, across multiple variants. Yeah, of course, because uh, something that gets overlooked a lot, I think, when um, people discuss classical liberalism and any kind of political text that gets put out there, and even, even our own website, The Lotus Eaters, has been guilty of this in the past. I have been guilty of this in the past. 
you have engaged in debates where some have been guilty of this, uh, which is that uh, you forget that the people who wrote them were people who existed in a time and a place and a context. Yes. Uh, and, and oftentimes quite a global context where they're reacting to things that have been going on in other nations or even in different continents. Um, and so it's easy to look at these ideas as being purely abstract, but a lot of the time they are responding to, reacting to, or trying to preempt events that have occurred in the recent time period. Yes. To, to be fair, there are uh, thinkers who embrace traditions and and uh, put, and let's say communicate them in a very abstract way and think about it in an abstract way. But the point is that there is room for abstraction, but you cannot explain how a particular movement got so massive just by citing uh, you know abstract ideas. You have to look at the concrete conditions that led to these ideas becoming more widespread. Yes. It's not just two but, people sitting in a in a room discussing ideas that in the abstract sound nice. You cannot explain how lots of ideologies and lots of systems of ideas they have completely shaped the world and they were adopted by many people in order to solve the problems they thought afflicted their societies. Yeah, to, to draw to a subject that I'm quite familiar with, with uh, within Austrian economics, Mises uh, was very fond of using particular thought experiments to isolate economic principles outside of the context of the reality that he lived in so that he could better understand how, how those uh, particular isolated principles work, but he then put them into a broader context Quite famously, prior to the mid-century Germans rising, he was actually quite fond of, uh, he was quite complementary to Italian fascism, purely because of the fact it was an anti-communistic force. Yeah. Obviously, his own principles that he'd isolated in his own political philosophy of classical liberalism was not conducive to fascism, but within that time and place, before the events of the, the 1930s, he recognized the concrete reality that he lived in and the necessity for particular action. So, for instance, Humboldt, he's talking about the limits of state action, but you say he was also quite necessary in getting Germany to rise up against Napoleon. I, I think uh, he, was, uh, people, he was one of the people who were instrumental in convincing the Austrians that Napoleon was a bigger threat than they thought. He has a very rich life and a very complex life, and you'll see that this complexity spills over into what he says, because he's very much in favor of complexity and variety. Well, I mean, it sounds like he's just ex living in the real world. In yes, that case, exactly. where nothing can just be distilled to the most simple answer. You can't just say, get rid of all state and all problems go away, or just give the biggest state imaginable and they will fix all problems. Those are very simplistic answers, so I look forward to hearing what he had to say on the subject. Back to what you said about abstraction, there is a need for abstraction, but uh, there is also a danger with abstraction. And a lot of the times in the sciences, thinkers are trying to abstract other conditions in order to show the relation between two variables. And you mentioned uh, Ludwig von Mises. In the economics, for instance, there is the Ceteris Paribus Clause, which means everything else being the same and stable, we're looking at you know, the, two, the relation between two variables, like price and quantity, or price and uh, or supply, supply and demand. demand. Yeah. Or uh, we could say this is also important for some people to 
find out about life because we say other things being equal you have f around and find out you know, <laughs> perfect it's, correlation it's with perfect one another correlation yeah <laughs> yeah okay so uh, let us uh, move to humboldt and be a bit more um, focused on him okay so essentially hayek described him as the germany's greatest philosopher of freedom he writes brilliantly and uh, a lot of the times people folk when they talk about german and german thinkers they just think of Kant and Hegel. They weren't the clearest writers, to be fair. And they are... Quite notoriously, even. Yes, and uh, they have sort of given a bad name about German writing. But, for instance, uh, there is also there are also many figures like Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Humboldt is one of them, that just write brilliantly. Yes. Yeah, so... Quite clearly, and in some cases, quite poetically as well. I would even state that um, from the writings that I've seen of him, while Marx could be an incredibly dense and difficult to pass writer, Engels actually was able to make the ideas that he was putting forward much clearer than Marx ever did. Not that that gives those ideas um, uh, uh, more legitimacy, but he was able to make them sound not like gibberish. <laughs> well, you have the misunderstood genius uh, complex with some people. They say that I don't have to be understood because if I'm not understood, it's on you. It's on your. It's your fault. It's on you. You have to understand what I'm saying. Anyway, I don't. I don't know what happened between Marx and Engels, but today we're going to talk about Humboldt. So Humboldt is someone who hates unidimensionality. He absolutely hates unidimensionality, and in his reforms with the Prussian education system. He focused on the idea of Bildung, the Bildungsideal, I think uh, he, meant, he referred to as, where the idea was that in ancient times, people were more, in a sense, ho holistic personalities. They lived in a world where they, did, they weren't just one-trick ponies. So he loves antiquity. And he says that we sort of we are not like the ancients. We live in a different world, but we need to somehow recapture that idea of a holistic personality and holistic education, rather than just educating people in becoming one-trick ponies. So that is his idea of buildings ideal in a nutshell. His education, uh, his system of education, has to do with allowing people to develop their own powers not interrupting the natural energy he thinks human beings have and letting people become multi-dimensional personalities with lots of skills and a kind of wisdom as opposed to confine them into performing very uh, very limited tasks so essentially, he does show awareness of a lot of the things that Adam Smith was talking about when he was talking about alienation and the pressures in the modern world to make people into one-trick ponies. And his education system was designed to counter that uh, negative influence. All right. So not much to say on that. Carry on. Yes. So essentially... We should talk a bit about his um, proto-libertarianism, 
there are stuff to criticize him on, and uh, but he has also some really good ideas. So we're not going to do a book review. By all means, I suggest to you read The Limits of State Action. Liberty Fund has a very good edition. I do uh, like Liberty Fund. They do some very nice yes, editions. They have a very good edition. I thoroughly recommend it. We are going to talk about some of Humboldt's main insights. So let us start in a very general uh, way and talk about things he wants and uh, means to achieve them. I'll say one thing that will maybe dispose you negatively towards him, but I have to say it. All right. Mill thought of himself as very much influenced by him. I mean, just because Mill took some uh, ideas from him yeah. doesn't mean that all of his ideas were terrible. Not all of Mill's ideas were terrible. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you say this. <laughs> I'm glad you're saying this. Um, but one thing to say, whatever commonalities they have in their concerns, Humboldt is someone who would not have embraced utilitarianism. He would have embraced a mix between Kantian ethics, he really admired Kant, and virtue ethics. So he doesn't seem to think of them as very much distinct. Now, The Limits of State Action is a political treatise, it's not an ethical treatise, but uh, you would have presumed that he would say more if he thought that they were mutually exclusive. He doesn't seem to think of them as incompatible. Personally, I don't think they are so incompatible. I, there are features of Kant that I don't like, but ultimately speaking, I think that the ontology and virtue ethics, they, they, they are compatible. And uh, I would also place myself to that uh, tradition or that school that tries to combine both of them. Anyway, so Humboldt says essentially that we have a goal. And he says that the goal of human life is Something like what Aristotle would say. He says that we're active beings. We're always striving for something. Rest is a fancy. You could also say that Nietzsche takes lots of ideas from, from Humboldt in this case, because Nietzsche constantly talks about uh, becoming or uh, dynamic living. He says there is no stasis. People who try to talk about things in, and try to put them in boxes, they try to freeze them and uh, they, they completely neglect the energy. That is involved in reality. They try to talk about the universe as a succession of paintings or pictures, and they completely neglect the most, the most intimate thing, power and the change it brings about. So what Humboldt says is that we shouldn't think of our destination as a static thing. We should think our destination as human being as a dynamic thing. We're always beings in the process of becoming. And what this means is that we have a potential, we have an energy that we cultivate and we channel into all kinds of activities and we try to improve ourselves in them. So he would say, naturally speaking, we are beings who have an energy. He says the prime virtue of human beings is energy. See, sort of. So I can see how it would um, be somewhat influential to a Nietzschean idea of vitalism. Yes, because it, it's it's prizing. Um, you could say the masculine energies that build civilizations. Yeah, I mean, he he wouldn't he, he wouldn't say so much that it's masculine or feminine because he would say for all human beings there mm. is the, the the fundamental virtue is energy, and that we do have a natural energy in us. That he would say, look at even uh, young people, 
they, they have energy and they want to channel it somewhere. That's why they run around. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also, this also applies to the animal kingdom. For instance, uh, think of a dog that runs here or there around. They just channel energy. That's why, for instance, if you want to... Uh, I remember with my brothers, at some point, they, they were doing this a lot. I have a brother, two brothers, 10 years younger than me, and uh, they were really energetic. That must have been really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the, the best thing would be to make them tired somehow. <laughs> Ma allow them to run around. Run in the circle for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, they would also do Smackdown and stuff, imp impersonations. And oh, some... I used to do that back in yeah. the day. <laughs> I, I must say, at some point, I had to take that um, game from them, because it was uh, they, they were trying to do the moves they saw. And... Uh, I, I used, it was dangerous, let's say. I, I used to have a trampoline in my pet garden when I was about 12 years old, and the next-door neighbor's kids would come over and we, and we would um, uh, uh, pretend to do choke slams and power bombs on one another. And yeah, I look back and I think, oh, that was really dangerous. Yeah. But just to give you a hint, we're not going to discuss just some stuff that Humboldt says. We're going to apply it in the real world, and we see how Humboldt essentially would hate wokeness. He would say that wokeness is a kind of weakness, and we're going to basically use his ideas to attack the kind of culture we're living in that the left is trying to instill upon us. So, let us see what he says about the goal of human beings. He says, the true end of man, or that which is prescribed by the eternal and immutable dictates of reason, and not suggested by vague and transient desires, is the highest and most harmonious development of his powers, to a complete and consistent whole. Freedom is the first and indispensable condition which the possibility of such a development presupposes. But there is besides another essential, intimately connected with freedom. It is true, a variety of situations. Even the most free and self-reliant of men is hindered in his development when set in a monotonous situation. So, there are lots of things to say about this brilliant quote, but let me just say one thing, because a lot of the times classical liberals are being represented as having an anthropology that says that essentially desires reign supreme. I think that this is supremely mistaken. You have here Humboldt saying, for instance, that the kind of moral ends of human beings have nothing to do with desires. So there is no anthropology behind classical liberalism that says that human beings are just beings that de de desire stuff, and just because they desire stuff, these stuff are right to pursue or do. I'm, I'm saying this because a lot of the times we listen and hear about this uh, thing. And uh, you see that he says essentially, we have a goal, and freedom and a variety of situations, as he calls it, are the two indispensable conditions for achieving that goal. So essentially, what he would say is that a very intervening state, a state that intervenes to, uh, beyond uh, its proper limits, is actually destroying the necessary conditions for us achieving the goal of becoming a developed human being. Where would he set those proper limits for the uh, okay, state? So, I think you're going to love him now. He is a monarchist minarchist. All right. 
Okay, yeah. So, in a sense, he does seem to have a Night Watchman state mentality. He says that the proper limits have to do with just securing negative rights for all human beings. And he says something that I don't know to what extent he did it because he was living in, in a monarchy. Because you would say that he, he, wrote, he wrote a few pages on it. No, he didn't expand on it. But he does seem to say that people enjoyed most uh, liberty when under monarchs, when living under monarchs who were fundamentally military leaders. And uh, here he sort of sets himself in the, in the monarchist mm. side of classical liberalism rather than the republican side of classical liberalism. G Germany has had a fondness for military leaders over the years, yes, <laughs> to and be fair. <laughs> also, Humboldt says at some point that he sort of, although he thinks that peace is a good thing, he sort of laments the fact that uh, Europe was a bit more peaceful in his time, because <laughs> he's... <laughs> he was bored. Send me to war somewhere, no, please. Well, he, he thought that essentially the good thing of the threat of warfare is that it tends to heighten the, let's say, the active virtues. And that it represents us with the conflict of life, which alerts us and wakes us up and makes us be more courageous and more virtuous. I mean, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that um, the, the threat of warfare, the threat of an outgroup coming and taking all of your stuff by force is one of those things that really strengthens the bonds of sentimentality, sentimentality within your own group. And without that threat, you do get a bit of a loosening of those sentiments where people don't see themselves as uh, connected to one another. And also, this was something that was one of the great virtues of the British Empire, was that without something to put those youthful energies towards, uh, people will become bored and they will become disconnected from society. And so having something, especially in an era where the Industrial Revolution was about to take off and you were about to get these enormous population explosions all throughout Europe in the 19th century, that leaves a massive excess of population who are going to have to do something. You know, it's, it's uh, often commented in the 19th century, you see a massive growth of inequality because all of a sudden you get the people on the lower ends of society having much larger families who are all surviving a lot longer and um, they've got nothing to do and they've got no, no money to be able to support themselves. So you end up with uh, the, the really low working classes. And so with the British Empire, it was amazing that if you were the seventh kid of a family of 13 children. Of a seventh son. Yeah, if you were the seventh son of a seventh son, you had no prospects in your own homeland. You could just go off onto a colony mm. in the empire and actually make something of yourself and channel that youthful energy. Um, so I, I absolutely think that you, uh, while, while war is hell, I think as well we have to consider that it was a different time. Warfare of that era was not the same as warfare now. The First World War, complete, well, the Boer War was kind of the um, prelude to it, but the First World War completely changed the way that wars were fought across the world. Yeah, so I think that this is a very major issue, and I agree with the war is hell thing. What I think is important to bear in mind is what, Essentially, uh, a lot of people associate with Thucydides, the ancient Greek historian after Herodotus, who was saying essentially, if you want peace, prepare for war. So 
war is hell, I think, but trying to think that it is it will go away weakens us. And in a way, it, it makes war more likely because there's nothing that provo- promotes war more than weakness. Than weakness. Because all of your neighbors are going to look and they're just going to see a yes. lamb ready for the slaughter. Yes. So there, I think that uh, there has to be a point where, you know, we grow up and we forget the, all the woke uh, propaganda that is being thrown towards us and the propaganda that is, yeah, that comes well, from woke, any side. Woke propaganda is precision engineered to yeah. split those bonds of sentimentality yes. I was talking about. Yeah. Your history is evil. Your people are evil. Everything about you is evil by virtue of the original sin of being born white or British or German or any of those things. And sad, sadly, the Germans were the ones who were who, who this was done to uh, earliest. I would say in the post-war period, they were the ones that all of this social engineering was put on at first with uh, denazification and. Uh, it's interesting that... Um, uh, you mean post-war uh, World War post, I or post-World post Post-Second post, post World War. Although, to be fair, the Treaty of Versailles putting the war guilt clause was a kind of an early attempt at that. It's interesting because I recently got done reading through a bit of um, AJP Taylor's, and you saw me do this, AJP yeah. Taylor's, um, the, the Course of German History, and that was published in 1945, I believe, and is was probably uh, filtered through any number of parts of the UK government, the British government, before it got published, especially given the time it was. Because the whole thesis of that book is that all of German history was leading to Hitler. There was no contingencies, historically or otherwise, or variations in German thought on other than a brutal militarism that could only ever lead to genocide. And that seems to have been the idea that's been festooned upon Germans ever since then, which is that if we leave you to your own devices, you will just try and murder people for no reason, Um, which is a a tragic thing as far as I'm concerned, because you could say, oh, well, the Germans asked for it, but then it gets put on us Mm -hmm. as well. The entirety of your history is the history of colonialism. The English mind, the European mind could only ever lead to evils being done to the rest of the world. I know you're preparing something about this, so I'm just going to let uh, the audience with suspense on it, right? <laughs> it certainly will be touching on those subjects, yes. Right, so back to Humboldt. Let's talk about the quote he has. So it seems to me really interesting because he gives us a very simple way of thinking about state interference and the evils of state interference. And I think that this is, in a way, a major insight in classical liberalism and nowadays libertarianism that we need to allow people to help themselves because essentially when we try to solve their problems for them, we are undermining their self-development mid to long term. And I think that this is a very important feature of discussing classical liberal ideals and also talking about classical liberalism and using classical liberal ideas in order to do social criticisms and commentary that we are doing. And I've, I've also experienced it in the debates we have that essentially there is something very counterintuitive to the person who listens to you when you argue for classical liberalism. Why? Because 
we have a tendency, a natural bias, to focus on the task at hand and forget the whole, let's say. This is as old as human beings. We've done so many symposiums on uh, wisdom and uh, wisdom cultures, and we show, and one of the goals of these symposium videos were to show that essentially, I've been saying essentially a lot. That's a bad <laughs> habit. I, yeah. We all have verbal tics. I'm yeah, I, very I, I guilty as well. So the task of wisdom is for us to remember the big picture because it's very easy to forget the big picture. So when you have people who face a problem and they say, say that they are incapable of solving it, whether they feel they are, that they are or not, there is something very counterintuitive in telling them, I shouldn't help you and the state shouldn't help you because by helping you in this small task here that you say that you won't help, you're being undermined if you bear the whole picture in mind. Well, people become helpless. Yes. People become helpless, they become unable to help themselves. Would you, would you say, uh, to put it in a very simplistic manner, that it's um, uh, um, a grand explanation, a grand exposition of the saying, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime? Yes. Yes, because I, I, I do believe in that. And I, I think as well, it seems to me from one of the previous discussions that we've had that uh, one of the goals of classical liberalism was to try and fulfill the aim of making it so that everybody within um, a European civilization could attain the status of um, Cicero's ideal citizen. Well, I, I do not know about this because... Um... There's a, there's a, this is a question I, I cannot give you a responsible answer to, and I don't want to BS uh, the audience and stuff. I would say possibly, but Cicero had a very classical Republican ideal for uh, how to be, which will likely not be the ideal that the monarchist classical liberals would embrace, like Hume and Humboldt. So I don't think we can talk about the goal of classical liberalism in in this case because it seems too general mm. but well, i would I, say I was, that this I was, is I was more putting forward that it's no, a, no. that it's a potential ideal one of the I ideals i think that this was one of the ideals of the renaissance and the enlightenment and uh, i see no reason why classical liberals would not want to promote it some may have not but i think that a lot of them would want it, but I don't know if we can credit that to classical liberalism as opposed to a more general idea of how to be, a more general Renaissance ideal that they carried. Because classical liberalism is predominantly a political doctrine. So what is interesting is that here he uses politics as a means for self-development. And that is what he says. Essentially, we need to allow uh, a sphere of individual rights for human beings and allow them to develop their own talents within those limits. So he would he would want uh, what you he would uh, want to teach people how to fish in a sense themselves. But but 
coming back to being taught how to fish and teaching others and fishing for others, it seems to me that there's a, there's a profound analogy you mentioned, and uh, thank you for doing it. Because I think we look at it when we think of statists, of uh, all sorts of uh, variants. They are saying essentially that there are people who need to be given fish rather than being taught how to fish. And what is counterintuitive for a person you are talking to about classical liberalism is that you need to fight against the kind of human tendency that people have to be, to be more willing to accept slow changes. That is why Hayek was writing in The Road to Serfdom that the more you allow the state to intervene in the economy and society at large, you take you go on a slippery slope that ends into more state power, a more, uh, let's say, dependent population, a population that depends on the state more and more. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.